The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning and welcome. I'm readjusting my mic because I did not like where it was. And and we're we're having we're all having a moment today. <laughs> it's okay. Welcome to the place where things go one way when you expect them to go another way, because that's what it is in the autism world, right? Uh, and we we go with the flow, because that's what you gotta do, and sometimes you gotta laugh about it, right? Okay, couple of things right here at the top of the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you live from the Warner Center in Woodland Hills, California. We are live, live, live right now. Uh, unless you're watching us later, in which case we're not live, 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 right? But we are live. Um, and so we want this to be interactive. We hope that you will participate with us because uh, we're going to be with you live for the next hour. So we want to keep the conversation flowing. Traven's going to show you some of the different ways that you can participate and have your comment or question or concern uh, read and addressed by me or uh, an autism expert. Because in a minute, I'll talk to you about the fact that I'm not one of those. But before we get too far, reminding you, yes, our homepage is autism-live.com. Uh, go there, check us out. You can chat at the bottom of the page, but you can chat in lots of different ways. But uh, today, I want to make sure that everybody knows that at midnight tonight, uh, Netflix will begin uh, allowing you to see the entire first season of Lock and Key. Now, um, you know, we, we talk about things from Netflix from time to time, but this is a biggie, you guys, because our dear friend Kobe Bird is a regular in this, uh, this new series. So Kobe's been on the show before. In fact, Kobe's worked for us before on the red carpet when I couldn't be there. And sometimes with, he's worked the red carpet with me when it's a longer event. He is an amazing young man, identifies himself as being on the spectrum, and he's an actor. And we have watched him since he was 14, now he's 17, uh, you know, grow up in this uh, community and take on acting roles. He's the one who was on The Good Doctor. He was on Speechless as well, but now he has this recurring role in this big show, a hit show uh, that starts on, I mean, it's already a hit, look, uh, but it starts at midnight tonight. Now, if you're like me, I. I am not going to be able to stay up till midnight, but um, I'm, I'm planning on tomorrow night and Saturday, like don't even talk to me because that's what I'm going to be doing is watching Lock and Key and supporting our dear friend Kobe Bird and being entertained, right? I, I hear that it's a little bit scary 
Um, so I don't know that it's appropriate for all your kiddos, but I think it's there's a lot of kids in the cast, so I think it's appropriate for teenagers, but I don't know that yet. I know very little except that it's based on a, graf a graphic novel that was written by Joe Hill. Joe Hill, you may know, is Stephen King's son. So, you know, the apple can't fall too far from the tree. I'm sure it's got some sort of a mystery, eerie um, feel to it. But they're saying it's the next Stranger Things, and I'm hoping that it's bigger than Stranger Things. Let's shoot for the moon. Uh, because, we, we're, first of all, we're supporting Kobe, who's a fabulous actor. By the way, he's a fabulous singer, too. And he's one of our family, right? So we're supporting, supporting Kobe. But also, raw to Netflix for their ongoing support of our community and their continued commitment to cast individuals who are on the spectrum in roles where the person is on the spectrum. And we were watching last night, they had the big premiere for it, and so IGN, you can go and look at this, um, did a, a live feed uh, from the premiere, and Kobe was one of the people that was interviewed. You can, he's sort of in the middle of an hour and a half long uh, live cast, and it's on YouTube now. You can go to IGN Netflix premiere, and you'll be able to see him. But he says, you know, in the show, um, they don't specify, but, you know, wink, wink, I think we all know that he's on the spectrum. And, uh, and Kobe talked about what that meant to him being a person on the spectrum and playing this character, Rufus. Um, so check that out tonight. Okay, uh, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about that as soon as I've watched it. All right, um, but in addition, I said that we would talk about the expert thing. We have lots of experts here on the show. We love for you to be able to communicate with them. You can do that on Facebook or YouTube or Periscope or you know any of the different ways that Traven showed you. But you can also chat on our um, homepage, autism-live.com. There's a place at the bottom hit chat and it opens up a box and you can write in. I see the questions. I'm the only one who sees the questions and I don't even get to see who you are or where you are. So it's totally anonymous, totally free. And then I can pose the question to the expert, right? Uh, okay. I, I always remind you that I'm not one of the experts. I, um, I'm a very proud mom of an individual who was diagnosed with autism at two and a half and he's a remarkable human being and I love him just exactly how and who he is, although he got a whole lot of support and um, services at the right time and we were able to get the right information to be able to do that intensively and intensive is the word, right? Um, and but we we did get great help, in fact, from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and um, I I say on a regular basis, my I cannot look at my son and say that he has any disability at all. Does my son's brain work differently than mine? You betcha, it's better than mine. <laughs> Let's be clear, right? Uh, his brain can see things that my brain couldn't even hope to see, right? Um, so does he have a disability? Manah. Nope, that's not. Um, did he once have a disability? You betcha. Um, but he now has all the apps running in his brain that help him to be able to decipher what's happening in the moment, and that's a that's a wonderful thing. So my role here is just someone who needs to pay back karmic debt, and I want I care very deeply and want to help you to get what you need. 
which is not the same thing as what I needed, which is not the same thing as what my son needed. But I, I welcome you if you're a part of the larger autism community. And that, of course, means individuals who are on the spectrum and everybody who loves and cares about them. We're the larger autism community. And we may not agree on everything. In fact, we may not agree on most things. But the one thing I think we all agree on is that individuals on the spectrum deserve respect, dignity, and support uh, of a nature that helps them to be able to do the things that they want to be able to do. I think we can all get behind that. Um, right? Uh, write into me. Tell me what you need. Tell me if you disagree with that, if you don't agree with me. Because uh, I think everybody in the larger autism community uh, can find a, find a space in there to agree with that. Um, hey, by the way, and I'm going to tell you this again later on in the show, but don't forget to be here tomorrow because for Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, we're welcoming Eric Asher from Respectability, who's going to be here to talk a little bit about um, what's going on in the, with the candidates and, um, and how to get more information about which candidates are supporting what aspect of support for individuals who have disabilities. Uh, I will also be going over, I am entrenched in and reading all of the positions, policy, policy position papers by each and every one of the candidates. And one of them, uh, well, let's say this, one on the Democratic side doesn't have one, and one on the Republican side doesn't have one. So there you <laughs> So we want to say to people, what are you doing? If you're running for president in, in this wonderful year, uh, you need to have one. Come on. Um, so uh, not, you know, not calling anybody's names out, right? But just saying. Okay. Um, so uh, we've got great guests for you today. Um, we're going to get to that in a second. But first, it's Thursday. You know what that means? It's time for jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym. We try to figure out what in the hey, nani nani, are those experts talking about? And why should we know this term? How is it going to save us time and money, right? Let's just pare it right down to the time and the money, right? So today's term is PECS. You may have heard this term before when people say, oh, it's a PECS thing or it's, oh, it's, we're doing PECS, right? And I, you know, I remember the first time somebody said that to me and I thought they were talking about the muscles, right? We are not talking about the muscles. So uh, let's take a look at what our actual definition for PECS is. It's Picture Exchange Communication System. All right, well, now we know what it stands for. But what is it actually? So let's take a look at what our working definition is for this and let's see if we can't pare it down. So the working definition is a form of functional communication. PECS enables individuals who are not vocal to be able to communicate their needs, wants, and desires through their own actions. All right. Well, you know what? I mean, that helps us to know. But if I don't have a way of being able to say, I would like a glass of juice, please. Um, and and, and you know, there are lots of different ways to say, I would like a glass of juice, please, right? I can point to it. I can hold up a piece of paper that says, I would like a piece, uh, I would like a, a glass of juice, please. Um, I can sign it if I know the sign language and if the person who is um, standing there knows the sign language, right? There are lots of different kinds of communication that aren't necessarily speech and vocal. However, when we're talking about a child, if a child does not have the ability 
to speak, right? Let's just go down the list here. Sometimes children don't have the ability to speak and that could be autism. That could be a whole bunch of other things, right? Um, typically children on the autism spectrum, pointing is not their forte. That's not all children, but pointing is usually not their forte. In fact, it's one of the things they look for to diagnose. Is the child gesturing um, purposefully? But a lot of times that is just not in their lexicon and we have to teach it to them. Um, and they usually can't read when they're two, although occasionally a child on the spectrum can, right? But it's very difficult. I don't know a child who can write at the age of two. There are some who can type, but writing is difficult, right? So we're, they're severely hampered in their different methods of being able to communicate if they don't have vocal speech. And we believe here at Autism Live, as do most people who know anything about autism, that everyone has the right to functional communication. So a baby has some functional communication. You know what they do? They cry. And we know, oh, baby's crying, they must need something, and we know what the four hit parades of what babies need are, and we just start trying those. Very ineffective. We go, get the pacifier, wiggle the baby, feed them. Are they cold? Are they hot? Right? Do they need a drink? Right? We do all of those things and go, oh, it was the, you know, I had to bounce them. They've got some gas and they, they needed to be held. Okay, that's what it was. And then we go, great. Now, there have been people who have sort of tried to perfect the different cries to know which one to make it more effective. Great. But at a certain point, children normally start to speak. And for the kids who don't, who are on a different trajectory right there, we can't just cut them out and say, you don't have functional communication. So an amazing gentleman, Andy Bondi, uh, who we have had the pleasure of interviewing at least once on the show, but we should have him back on the show. He came up with this idea of, you know, children still can be visual, not all of them, but some of them are very visual. And if we gave them the opportunity to have a little square of paper, that had a picture of juice on it that we could teach uh, a child who is non-vocal and who is, does not have, have the capability necessarily of pointing yet. Uh, we could make a little icon with a glass of juice on it and we would just teach the child that this, when you give me this, then I will give you a glass of juice. juice. So that's why it is a picture exchange because you give it to me and I give you juice, right? Um, and so you will see some kiddos who are walking around with a little, what looks like a little book on a binder ring. And each uh, page of the book has, uh, it's like a laminated sheet and it's got Velcro on it. And it's got these little things that look, they're tokens. They look like little stamps. They've got a picture on them and there's Velcro. And you'll see the child go get their book and rip a thing off and give it to you and you look at it and you go, oh, you know, and it has a picture of a bathroom on it. And that's them telling you that they have to go to the bathroom. So uh, other people call it iconic communication, but PEX, uh, Picture Exchange, is the Andy Bondi system. And there, and boy, that you can read, there's, you know, you can and you can purchase the icons, right? Um, but 
what was what's amazing about the picture exchange communication is that it set a floor of opportunity for kids to be able to communicate because i don't have to understand the system in order to look at and go oh as long as i understand that if you give me this you want something and i can look at it and i can see that it's water or i can see that it's colored purple so that they want grape juice right and there are extensive icons there are kids who carry a volume of these things around and they'll go through and they'll pull out and they'll go baked potato, sour cream, chives, right? And give them to you and they'll be like, that's what I want, right? Um, but, you know, after a certain period of time, uh, like that gets, <laughs> you're carrying around that book and then having to go through and find the thing uh, isn't necessarily the most efficient, right? For little, little kid, get to get started to understand the concept of it, absolutely. But what they saw with the advent of the iPad was that they could computerize this and they, you know, so now you see kids who they'll boom, 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 boom. They hit the little icons and it makes a sentence for them and it says, I want juice, please, right? But I wanted you to understand where that started from because sometimes people will still, uh, we still, not sometimes, we still absolutely use PECs. Uh, people use the iconic communication um, which is sometimes it's 3D, right? But it's important that we give functional communication. And to understand that that, uh, the basis of it, of you give me this, I give you that, um, is, is what led to the iPads and all these apps now that, you know, kids and adults can communicate because functional communication is the right of every individual the right of every individual. And let me just say this before we move off of this. If you are a parent or a caregiver and they're telling you that your child, teen or adult, that they want them to move to assistive technology um, because for whatever reason, that they wanna give them an iPad, they wanna do a Dynavox, whatever the assistive technology is, um, and there are lots of different apps. Some of them are wildly expensive. Them, some of them are not, right? But if, if a professional um, is saying to you, it's time to do this, I know from talking to people, it feels like a death. It feels like everybody's giving up. Please understand that the research shows very clearly that we are moving always towards the point of more and more individuals on the autism spectrum being fully vocal, always. There was a time when it was like only 17% were fully vocal, and now I think it's down to 13% are not vocal. So we keep getting better at it. And one of the things that science has shown us very clearly is that individuals who get functional communication, if they're, if they're not getting to speech and we give them functional communication, they are more likely to get to speech. So do not feel like it's giving up. It's the right fit. It's the right thing to do if we're not getting to speech. Give the functional communication. It opens up their world, and then we can teach. Not for everybody. We're not there for everybody yet. Let's not be mistaken, but we're getting closer to the day when we can say that. Isn't that amazing? Okay, pecs. It's a really good thing. Thank you, Andy Bondi. We'll have to get him back on the show. All right, moving on to, we always have a question of the day, and our question for you today, which you can be answering on Facebook or YouTube or any of the different ways that you connect with us, our question is, what's your weakest sense? And, you know, we find that um, in autism, often there are heightened senses, right? That our kiddos, um, sometimes they have a sensory processing disorder where 
everything is so loud and it's all at the same decibel and they can't you know lower the volume on something like i'm here in the studio and we're backed up against where the elevator shaft is and i you know every once in a while we'll have somebody come in and they'll go what is that occasional whoosh and i have tuned it out right but it's the elevator uh we're, we're supposed to be soundproof so it's so supposed to be dead yeah wink wink um and we all are able to tune certain sounds out and normalize them and go i yeah that's happening but i'm not paying attention to it but for folks on the spectrum that's really really hard that we have found that we can teach it but it's really really hard and it takes some time um and, and if they are sound sensitive, sometimes we need to put some sound canceling headphones on them to help them to be able to focus on whatever is happening at hand, right? Um, I am somebody who's super visual, which is great, means I'm a quick study for a lot of things, but if I can't picture it, sometimes I'm, I'm lost. I'm completely in the lost, um, in the weeds and can't, mm, you know. But so I sort of feel like this goes hand in hand. What's your strongest sense? What's your weakest sense? Mine is hearing because some things are too loud for me and some things I can't hear. I don't know what that's about, but it makes it really difficult. It's probably why I'm so expressive and I'm not so good at the, you know, the receptive. I need to listen better. Um, but listening is sometimes not okay with me. Now it can be hilarious. My, my husband loves it. Sometimes I'm in the kitchen and he's watching TV in the living room and I'm listening from the kitchen, but it's distorted around the corner and I'll yell out and I'll go, did he just say that? And it just, it's hysterical. My husband always, he's like, no, that is, how did you get that? That is not what is it? So my hearing is completely unreliable. Um, but, but visually, Man, you know, if, if I, we could have a conversation and a year later, you and I could be talking about it and you'd say, oh, I don't really remember what happened then. And I go, weren't we at this and so cafe? Yes, you were wearing a blue shirt. You know what you said then? You said this. And then, and then we can remember what it was that happened. But if I can't picture it, I can't access the memory. So it is both a strong sense and a weak sense. What is it for you? What is it for you? And ask yourself, how does that make you more teachable in some areas and needing a little bit more help in another area? And if that doesn't help you to understand the people in your life, come on. Like how the, the next question is, what's their strongest sense and how does that help them to learn and how does that make it more challenging for them to learn? If somebody wants to just lecture to me and there's nothing to look at, I got to really, uh, sit there and focus and sometimes I have to draw, not take notes, draw to give myself a visual. Just saying. Uh, one of my favorite things as a teacher, one of my favorite success stories as a teacher was I had a young man in my class and he, I discovered it was a seventh grade class and I discovered that he couldn't read. And he didn't want to come after school to learn how to read, right? And he just wasn't interested in the whole reading thing. But I found out that brilliant artist, brilliant artist. And so, and every time we would start to read something in class, he, I, I'd get behavior from him just like, cause he was mad and frustrated, right? And, and he, uh, listening wasn't his greatest sense, but not mine either, right? And so I said, you know, this, we were reading A Wrinkle in Time, one of my favorite books. And I, I, I said, you know what we really need in class? We need 
we need to be drawing pictures because this is such a visual thing, this book. I wish that there was just somebody in this class. Is anybody good at art? We need an artist. We need a class artist. And he, you know, are you kidding me? And I said, wow, if I, you know, got you some like uh, colored pencils, would you be willing to, while we read aloud, would you be willing to draw what we read aloud? Yeah. And that young man could read by the end of the year, right? And he was engaged and he loved that book, Wrinkle in Time. I'm just saying, if we know what somebody's strong sense is, we can find the way to teach them, right? Including ourselves. Okay. Um, all right. We've got a great show for you. Oh, I left out what's our topic this week. Dun, 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 dun. It's left over from, uh, it's been all week, right? Uh, but our topic this week is safety first. I think sometimes we get upside down and we, you know, we get going in a different direction. And um, this has got to be the first thing, safety first. Um, so no matter what you're doing, no matter how you're going about it, safety first, right? Um, whether it's how you're getting to work today, um, how, how you're treating your child. I, I know that there are some folks, uh, we're, I'm a big fan of, of Taka and, and, and the way that they approach biomedical because they do it in a measured, safe way. And they also look at doctors to see if they are people who go in a measured, safe way. We know that there are some doctors out there throwing spaghetti on the wall. And I don't get that because doctors are supposed to take that Hippocratic oath of, you know, do no harm, first do no harm. Safety first. Um, make sure you're working with somebody who's reputable, right? And make sure that you're considering safety first. I want you to go to all your therapy appointments, but at, when you get in the car to go to your therapy appointments, take a moment, sit in your car, put the seatbelt on, take a breath, right? And then go, because safety first, right? It should be the, the key to everything. And we'll talk about that more um, in our mindfulness moment. But we've got great guests. Uh, on Thursdays, we try to bring you whenever possible, ask an autism expert. We're welcoming back autism expert Amy Sackrider. She is an amazing young woman, quite a, uh, an expert, BCBA, and uh, we'll tell, let her tell you what her new role at CARD is. So um, that's coming up. And then we're going to do our mindfulness moment, and that'll probably get us to the end of the show. But I'm hoping to get some comments from you guys, questions as well. So send them on in. We'll be right back with Amy Sackrider after these messages. Welcome back to Autism Live. We have joining us on the phone, the fabulous, the wonderful, I'm a huge fan of hers, Amy Sackrider. She is an autism expert and she is joining us for not the first time. And Amy, I am a big fan of yours. I say nice things about you behind your back all the time. Uh, so, Thanks, Shannon. <laughs> so welcome, welcome back to Autism Live. Amy, tell the folks at home what your role is at CARD. Sure. Well, I've been with CARD for about eight and a half years, so I've held many roles. I started as a therapist, um, became a supervisor in BCBA, have also been a clinical manager for several of our offices um, in San Antonio, and I am now um, a regional manager for the San Antonio Corpus Christi offices. So I work with all of our leadership teams um, at the various offices to help make sure that we are seeing our, um, our kids as much as we need to, and we are... Um, making sure that our offices are, are operating optimally so we can keep helping families. 
And Amy is awesome sauce. I can tell you that firsthand. Uh, whenever I'm, I'm talking to somebody, you know, a parent, and, and I'm like, what region are you in? And, and they tell me Texas. I go, oh, I'm so glad because uh, you guys have a good team down there, and you're a part of that good team down there. Thanks. Card Texas is strong. We're it really is. Strong. You even, good family. You even have T-shirts that say that. I, I have one, I, I recall. Oh, good. And anyway, yes. Uh, okay, so Amy, we've got a couple of questions that have come in, and this one goes right along with what we were talking about earlier on the show. The question is, how do I use a tablet to help my child communicate? Okay, really good question. Um, okay, the, there are a few answers to this. Um, there are so many different apps now for um, iPads and different kinds of tablets. Um, that really set you up to have an iconic communication system, meaning that you're using pictures to tell other people what you want. Um, most of those apps, when you touch the picture, there's some kind of voice output. So, you know, you touch something that says, can I have juice and the, or juice, and the voice output is, can I have juice? Um, some really popular ones are ProLoco, Go, Touch Chat, um, but there are so many different ones. Um, and there is a bit of a process um, to teaching a person to use this, but the good news is there's really not a lot of prerequisite skills that you need. So, like, you're, you're the individual you're trying to teach to use the tablet doesn't have to have a lot of other foundational skills in order to be able to get the hang of this. Um, but there are a few different ways that you can start teaching, it, and a lot of times what you're doing is just like a lot of other things with ABA, you're starting with um, more prompting, and then you're fading them out. Um, and one of the things that you can do to start um, is have just one um, icon on the screen. So maybe you just have a picture of their favorite toy. And a lot of these apps you can uh, either have like preset pictures or you can take your own picture of something in your house, you know. Um, and they can touch it or you can prompt them to touch it and then you make sure they get it immediately. So they start to make the connection between I touch this and I get what I touched. Um, and then eventually you want to make sure that you're adding in multiple pictures so you're teaching your child that um, not only do you touch something and then you get something, but you touch the actual correct picture of what you're asking for and then you get it. Yeah, we, we were just talking before, our definition of, uh, of the day was PECS and, we, and I, we were talking about how important it is to give functional communication to absolutely mm -hmm. everyone. So, um, you know, I, I love, it, it isn't that hard. Uh, of course, I, I, I'm sure that you would say this too, Amy, it's infinitely easier if you're working with an ABA team who can help you to set it up. Um, and, and teach it very quickly to your child, and then all you have to do as the caregiver is implement what's been set up. That's That would be the easiest way to do it, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. There's probably, you know, resources online that can help you figure out how to set it up, but I would definitely recommend working with someone who's done this before so that they can make sure that you're, you know, setting up a process that's going to be really effective for your kid. In fact, I think that, I'm, I don't quote me, but I think that there is a video on Institute for Behavioral Training about setting it up, um, whether it's in the parent section or it is in the, the therapist section, I'm not sure, but it would be available to the public. I'll check on that uh, during the break. But I want to move on to the next question because it's a, it's a good one. How much therapy is too much? Oh, such a good question. And with so much with ABA, uh, I feel like the answer is it's so individualized. But I can speak a little bit to, you know, what your different scenarios might be. So um, as I'm sure you talk about a lot on your show, Shannon, like 
early and intensive intervention is definitely like your your best case scenario, right? So if you have a kiddo who um, is young and has autism, then you are looking for optimally a, a full-time comprehensive program, which can be up to 40 hours a week. You really want to make sure that when your kid is little and they're primed for learning and they're in that period where they're just soaking everything in, that you're giving them as much treatment as you can. And you're really trying to create an environment um, during as many of their waking hours as possible that is just optimized for creating learning opportunities. Um, with that said, you know, I'm sure that um, family, families listening have lots of different aged kids. So, um even if your child is not young, you don't have to worry that you've missed a window. ABA works at any time in a person's life. Um, so what you really want to do is make sure that you get with um, a BCBA or a professional in this field who can give you an individualized recommendation for your child that takes into account their current skill level, um, if it's appropriate for them to be in school, if they're in a good school environment, if they're even able to maybe have some kind of school shadow. That kind of varies depending on, you know, where you are in the country or in the world. Um, but generally what we try to do is start with more therapy, create foundational change that we need for the child, and then as they are making progress, we start to fade out and titrate and transition to um, reduce therapy hours. But you definitely don't want to sell yourself short in the beginning. Yeah, I gosh, I so appreciate everything that you just said. The words that popped out of me about intensive, early intensive, um, and then that whole thing about every waking hour being an educationally enriched environment. You know, what I find when people are asking the question, how much therapy is too much? It's like, it's a really good question. But for me, there's a, there, it like begs that there is, um, it's the, there's a different question. And the, the different question is, how can we make having all of their waking hours be fun and exciting while being educational? Because that's the piece, like, you know, you want your child to get their full prescription of whatever the BCBA said they wanted, but I think it's up to us as parents to learn everything we can from these amazing people like Amy and her team so that we can be doing it in the hours that they're not there. But the key is it's got to be fun. It's, it's got to be so exciting. And I, you know, yes, I'm a former teacher, so I was already sort of keyed into that. But our team was so good at helping me to understand that, you know, if we were working on, like, I remember when we were working on colors and sort of like Sesame Street, you know how Sesame Street has, well, you know, the color of the day is yellow, right? And then throughout the show, there's all these things where they're reinforcing yellow and talking about yellow from all these different aspects, right? And so our team would say to us, okay, this week we're working on green. And, you know, mom, anytime you're in the car with him, anytime you're eating, anytime you're at the playground, anytime, anywhere, like find ways that you can be looking at green. So if we were in line at the grocery store, we would play I Spy and, and that it would always be green things and we'd be trying to look for it. When we were just driving, we would, get, we would come up to a light and I'd say, what color is it? Is it red or is it green? And he would go green from the back seat, right? So it's, but it's got to be exciting, you guys. Too often, I think when people say, well, how much therapy is too much? That maybe it's not, we're not getting it exciting enough and fun enough. So my yeah. two cents on that. But on to our third question here, Amy. Um, the, oh, this is a doozy. Help my child hums. That's a great 
great one. Yeah. I have lots of questions, as I always would, um, anytime that we're, you know, thinking about how we're gonna how we're gonna address a particular issue. But um, the, the main one that, again, I'm sure you talk about all the time on your show, Shannon, is the first thing. I'm assuming that by bringing this up, that the person is indicating that they would like their child to hum less or hum at appropriate times. Yes. Um, so the first thing you want to try to do is figure out the function of the behavior. Why is the behavior happening? What's the payoff? Um, and you can do that a few different ways. You can do it by consulting with um, someone who's familiar with behavior analysis. You can also take your own ABC data. So ABC data um, means that you're writing down what happens before the behavior, which is the antecedent, and then you're writing down the behavior, which in this case is probably humming, and then you're writing down the consequence, which is what happens after the behavior. And if you can do that, then you can start to figure out you know, the patterns and you can figure out if they're humming for escape, attention, access to something tangible, or automatic. Then, once you know why they're doing it, you can come up with a with an appropriate intervention. So options might be, you know, can you shape the humming into something functional? Can you teach them to hum particular songs that might be more appropriate? Or can you teach them maybe to sing? Um, can't, and then, you know, you also might want to work on eventually being able to teach in times that it's appropriate or not. Um, and this depends on, you know, your child's um, stage in, in their learning process, like what, where they kind of are in their learning. But um, you can use different strategies to teach them when it's appropriate to hum or not. Those could be visuals, like maybe a red card or a green card or a red bracelet or a green bracelet. Um, it could be gestures from you, you know, maybe a finger to your lips. Um, lots of different things. And then if your child is at the stage where they are able to start monitoring their own behavior, then you could teach them self, we call them self-monitoring skills. So being able to keep track of what you're doing, you know, yourself and have them start tracking, um, you know, if they know that there are times that they sh they are allowed to hum or they maybe shouldn't be humming, um, you know, can they keep track of that themselves? Oh, you know, I was... Um, you know, uh, in class today for 15 minutes, did I hum in the last 15 minutes or not? And start being aware of that themselves. Because that's what we do, you know, for our own behavior is we keep track of, of what we do and if it's okay. So that's a lot of different steps. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, but I would definitely recommend starting with why. Yeah, I, and we talk a lot on the show about that function of the behavior, that it's there for a reason, that is doing something for that kiddo. Um, but you brought up the ABC, and I always show them here while I was doing my origami project while you were talking, where I fold the paper into three columns, and then I write ABC across the top, and I take notes. The A, what happened before, the behavior, and the consequence. And if you're working, and hopefully you're working with uh, a, B, a, a BCBA and a team for ABA, if you are able to bring this in on a behavior and have it list you know what happened. You know what happened before, even what time it was. Um, you know what the behavior looked like and what the consequence was. Even if you don't get it perfectly, doesn't that really help you as a BCBA, Amy? Oh, it's golden. Like that information is so helpful, and I also think not only is it helpful for you know the BCBA and your team, but it's helpful for you to start oh. paying attention to some of those things um, and start noticing patterns. Yeah, that's the thing. Behavior. Patterns jump out. And you start to go, oh, this isn't random. This is, this is there's something going on here. Um, so it's a powerful, powerful thing. But that understanding that there is a function of the behavior, it has a purpose. We never just say, well, then let's make that behavior stop um, and not worry about what the function was. We have to find a way for that function to be met in a different way. I think that's the, boy, I was on that soapbox the other day, Amy. I think that's the thing that bugs me about in this 
current temperature where ABA is everywhere, it, it isn't all good ABA. And the, when I hear a parent complaining about ABA, it's usually because they were working with someone who did not understand and, and appropriately uh, deal with behavior, understanding that b the behavior had a function um, and that that has to be looked at and not just obliterated. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Makes me crazy. And the other thing I didn't even really mention is you want to figure out, and you touched on it, you want to figure out a replacement behavior. You know, what can the child do instead that's going to meet that same need, yeah. but is going to be a little bit more appropriate and, help, you know, a little bit more socially appropriate and, um, and you know, less, uh, create less obstacles for them. Absolutely. Amy, you are spectacular. I say it all the time. I'm going to keep saying oh, it. Thanks, um, I'm sorry, Trayvon, what would you say? Oh, thank you. Traven is reminding me that as we go, and thank you so much for being with us, Amy. As we go Absolutely. to break, we had somebody who wrote in about um, helping someone to communicate in, um, when they've had an accident on the roadside. Uh, I, if you can give me any more information, I'm prepared to go with what you have after the break, but if you could give me any more information about are we trying to help them, the person with the tracheostomy, to communicate, or are we trying to get the... Um, first responder to know what to do, and does the person with uh, the tracheostomy, are they an adult or are they a child, and, and what is their functionality? That would help me immensely. So Amy, thanks for being with us, and you guys, uh, if you're the person writing in about the tracheostomy question, please send me more info, and we'll be back after these messages. Stick with us. Hey, welcome back. I want to give a shout out uh, to the folks who are writing in saying they're watching from Kentucky and South Carolina. Oh my goodness, uh, you guys had tornadoes today, didn't you? I hope everybody's okay. Um, but thanks for being with us and for watching. We surely do appreciate it. Somebody else wrote in for the question of the day and said that their uh, weakest sense is facial recognition and being able to hear words correctly or incorrectly. And so thank you because that brings up a whole bunch of things that we can talk about that maybe potentially will help other people. We had a guest on the show um, a couple of years ago. I need to get him back. And he has one of those names that I, like he works with eyes. And so I think his last name, it's something weird like ears. I'm gonna find it for you. But this is a gentleman who is in Scotland and he specializes in the whole visual um, not being able to recognize faces. And he has a book that you can buy for like $7.99 online. It's an ebook. It's, it's almost like a pamphlet. It's, I think it's only like 24 pages long. But he's been studying extensively individuals who have a visual... I don't even want, know what to call it, a disturbance that um, means that some, and he shows you pictures that sometimes they look at faces and it looks like, you know how when you do a conical thing and it spins everything? And so the, the feature, you know, it's almost like a Picasso. People used to look at Picasso in the beginning and go, where's the face there, um, right? But that sometimes folks on the spectrum see faces in an entirely different way. And it, sometimes it's that thing where, um, you know, we have lots of kiddos that are on the spectrum that they, you know, will struggle with different things and then they finally take them to a developmental ophthalmologist and the developmental ophthalmologist, you know, just holds up a thing and says, how many lions do you see? And the kids go, I see four and there's one, right? The kids can be, have double vision. They can have more than that. Um, or, or, you know, they have tests to be able to see. Well, this doctor has um, found that 
sometimes giving you colored lenses can change it. And he has videos online. You probably can look for him on YouTube if you look up colored lenses for autism. Um, but you see videos and there'll be a person, you know, an adult who's sitting there and he holds up his hands and he says, can, like this close to their face, and he says, can you see my hands? And they're like, no. And he goes, can you see my hand? You know, and he keeps going in until they can see. And sometimes it's like right here where they can see the hands, but right here they can't. And for sure they can't right here. Um, and he puts a pair of glasses that just have like a red tint or a blue tint. And they go, oh my gosh, I can see your, what? Look at all the things I can see. Side vision. Uh, sometimes he's put them on kids and they stop toe walking. Because we know that that is part of a visual disturbance. So... I encourage you to check that out, and I'll, I'll see if I can get him back on the show. And then, interestingly enough, the hearing words wrong, sometimes um, that is a, a person's ability to process um, different pairs of sounds. There are lessons in skills uh, that we talk about here on the show all the time that are just for that. Especially the English language, we have a lot of diphthongs and triphthongs, and they're very tricky for the ear to hear. And so um, they can, you can train an individual uh, just by practicing and working on it, and the lessons are all there right in skills. They're pretty amazing. And you go to skillsforautism.com to see that. So um, now, Traven, is the person with the tracheostomy written back in? They have not written back in. Okay, so for those of you who, um, you know, uh, tracheostomy, it's when you've, you've got a device. My mom had one, and I was the person who was responsible for taking it out, cleaning it, and putting it back in and suctioning her out. I actually know more about tracheotomies and tracheostomies than the average bear, right? Um, but it's, you, so you've got a device that helps you to be able to breathe. Um, through your trachea and it's usually metal or plastic um, and it's it's got an opening and you you know there's a little um, uh, choker that holds it in place um, and yeah it's a pretty intense thing and and some people are able to cover the hole and produce sound and other people are not um, I would say that if someone is in a roadside accident and they've had a tracheostomy, it's possible that they won't be able to get their hand up to be able to do that. Uh, if I, I would want to make sure that that person was wearing a medical safety bracelet that says tracheostomy and any allergies that they have, because in an accident, you know, if there's something that you're allergic to, that could be disastrous if you're not able to communicate it, right? Um, but... Um, if you are the, the person who is the first responder and it's somebody with a tracheostomy, the first thing, I'm sure that they're trained to do this, but the first thing is to make sure that that airway is clean and clear and not disturbed, right? But then if the person, uh, you know, you, you could do a check, you could cover the hole for just a second to see if that helps them to be able to speak if they're unable to do that. You would not do that for more than a second, obviously, right? Um, but... Um, other than that, um, I would want that person, I, you know, I, I'm thinking about this uh, with my mom. My mom got pretty good at not sign language but gestures. Uh, I would want to know a little bit of sign language or to be able to think through gestures. But again, if your arms are, you know, disabled at that point, it could be really difficult, right? If I, you know, my mom didn't drive when she had her tracheostomy, so she was only ever with someone. 
Um, but I, I, you know, obviously, I don't think that that's a, a, a rule. Um, but it would be really difficult. Uh, but I'll, I'll ask around and ask some other people about how and what um, to do that, because um, that's a that's a pretty good question. Write in, give us more information. All right. Um, what else? And we still have time. Let's go to a break, and then we're going to come back to look at some of the other things that you guys have written in. Stick with us. What is autism? 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 I've been asking myself that for a very, very long time. Um, let me think about that one. <laughs> trying to, uh, just, um... Jeez. Let me think. <laughs> oh man, that's a big one. Yes. Uh, autism. Uh, autism is a neurological disorder that affects many of our kids in different ways. It's a learning disability that affects the cognitive functions of the brain. A lot of people have the misconception that it's a disability, and it's really not. I look at it as like a special gift. When one person thinks differently from another, it's an opportunity for everyone to learn to understand someone that's a little different than them. Autism is the ability to educate. They're given so much talent in different areas. To me, autism means a chance to be with and be around people you really care about. Autism is beautiful. It's a way of seeing the world differently. It's always unique, totally intelligent, and sometimes mysterious. Happiness that, that, that comes out of my um, son's um, hard work. It's a movement. Unpredictable. That's right. Awesome. Love. The field I want to work in. Laughter. Fun, joy, autism is beautiful to me. I want you to remember these three words. There is hope. say we shot that many years ago at uh, a Fullerton Cares uh, Mardi Gras for autism that's why everybody's wearing beads and has crown hats on <laughs> they don't usually walk around like that great event uh, the Mardi Gras for autism it is coming up again it is the 10th annual Mardi Gras for autism we'll talk about it more as it approaches but it's happening on April 4th this year so if you're making your travel plans April 4th uh, and, and that's uh, happening in Fullerton at the train station parking lot. So we'll talk more about that as it shows up. Great, great event. My favorite community event of the year. But it is time, my friends. We, we, we're going to eke in a little mindfulness moment here. So uh, our topic this week is safety first. And I know that a lot of times we talk about um, anxiety, whether it's the kiddos, the teens, or the adults who are actually on the spectrum themselves, or the anxiety that caregivers tend to have. And I know a lot of moms, pick me, who have a lot of anxiety and in the middle of their child's intervention, um, sometimes, I mean, I, I was diagnosed with a panic disorder, so just keeping it real here, right? Um, and what I learned through that process is that anxiety is, um, and, and, and sometimes, especially when it gets to a compulsive level, I, anxiety is a part of everything, right? We're, we're going to have a certain amount of anxiety. And a lot of times, I know people who go, oh, I don't have anxiety. Like, that's not a part of what I do. But I watch them, and they do have anxiety. They just have languaged it to themselves in a different way. So when they're feeling anxious about something, for them, it's exciting. You know, when, when we're on a plane, and I'm with somebody who loves to be on a plane, and we hit one of those air pockets, and they're like, woo! It's like a ride on 
on Disneyland and I'm like, you know, holding on for dear life and, you know, planning my will and, and they're like, woo, that was fun. Um, so I think part of it is how we language it for ourselves, but I do think it's important to recognize that um, especially when somebody's having compulsive anxiety uh, and OCD kind of anxiety, that that is a desire to feel like they have some measure of control. And that it's very fascinating uh, that what I came to understand is that there are some things that I don't have control over. Um, and you know, talk about safety and your child. There are some things that I do not have control over for my child and that causes me to have OCD. Um, but what I learned through good cognitive behavioral therapy and I want to encourage you to do that is they help you to be mindful, to talk yourself through things kind of with a serenity prayer to say, you know, it's, the serenity prayer is grant me the wisdom to understand the things I cannot change, the, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference, right? So to understand, okay, I can't make sure that my son is safe all the time. That is not possible. Now I immediately go, ah, you know? Um, but the next part of it is, so what do I have control over? Well, I have, I have a lot of control over, you know, X, Y, and Z. And am I exercising control over those things? Uh, you know, then I need to. And once I know, oh, well, those are the things I need to do to control X, it's amazing how the anxiety goes, right? And cognitive behavioral therapy helps you to talk through what's happening right now. Are you safe right now? Is your child safe right now? And, you know, if you can have that conversation, then the answer is yes. Because if your child was not safe right now, we would not have time to have that conversation. So mindfulness is about getting it in this moment, not in the fear of what may happen, not in the fear of what happened in the past, but in this moment and saying, am I safe? Um, are they safe? And if you truly are saying, I don't know, then you kick it into gear and go, what can I do to change that? And it is amazing how being in action really mitigates that anxiety. If you get present first, get clarity on what's happening, and then take action, whoo, but it starts with that getting in this moment right here. And that's easy enough to do. It's just like taking inventory, going, what's happening right now? Put your feet flat on the floor, put your hands on the table, or put them on your thighs, or put them on the arm of the chair, whatever, you know, whatever's closest to put them so that they're Palm down, you're feeling the space, whatever the space is, and, and say, what's happening right now? Well, you know, my breathing is shallow. Okay, I can take control over that. I can slow it down a little bit. My heart rate is racing. If I slow my breathing down, that's going to help. Um, but is anything else happening? Do I, is there a person with an ax chasing me? No, because I guarantee you, if they were, you wouldn't be sitting there taking stock. You, you would just kick it into gear. What about my child? Is my child okay right now? Um, and if they're not... What can I do about it? Ask yourself that question. What do, what's in my control? And then go take care of those things. That's all. And I think you'll find that, does it completely eliminate the anxiety? No. Um, but it will help to mitigate it. Okay, I got, I got to talk a little bit about what's happening on the show tomorrow, manana. Uh, so on the show tomorrow, it's Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. It's kind of a special episode. Nancy will be here with me, and we're sort of taking on the political thing. Now, before you get all emotional, we're not going there, <laughs> right? We are only talking about the political field as it relates to autism. 
Um, I'm, I'm, I feel like that's a really important distinction to make because everybody has their opinions. Please show up here with your opinions. I love you all. Let's be here. Let's not all agree, right? But I want to give you some information. Um, we have all of the position papers, policy papers on the top candidates that are running um, on the Democratic ticket because, you know, it's you know, we're figuring out who's going to run there. And then, um, you know, but we're talking a little bit about what's happening on the Republican side as well. And we have a very special guest who's with us tomorrow, Eric Asher from Respectability. So tune in. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.